In this episode, Parker Hairtine and Cody Warda finish off the interview series with Dr. Jordan Westling. In the first two episodes, we discuss topics ranging from the value account of love, creation out of love, and suffering love. So be sure to check these out. In this present episode, we finish off the series by talking about love and retributive punishment. We hope you enjoy. The last topic we'll address is punitive love. Uh, So you address a couple standard approaches to the doctrine of punishment. Could you tell us about the divergent and unitary accounts? Yeah, good. I yeah, I really like this topic, right? <clears throat> so the proponent of the divergent account maintains that God's punishments sometimes diverge from what God's love of the one punished would otherwise require. Right? So in other words, the aims of divine punishment, qual punishment, need not and regularly do not aim to enhance the good or flourishing of those punished. They don't try to, they need not and often do not, right, seek to procure the sort of goods affiliated with love. By contrast, the proponent of the unitary account of divine punishment says that God's punishment, God's punishment of an individual is, at least in significant part, motivated by love for that individual. So now when someone, on this view, when someone punishes an individual, you're trying to um, seek these sort of ends affiliated with love or the sort of, yeah, so something like enhance their flourishing or bring about union between uh, you and the other, something like that. So that's unitary count and the divergent count. Okay. So what motivations are there for divergent or for the divergent account? And what do you find problematic with this account or its, its motivations? Yeah, so there are a number of motivations for the diversion account, as you would guess, right? But one significant idea is that a holy and just God will utterly crush those who sin against him and don't repent, right? Rendering anything nearing rich future flourishing impossible, right? The thought is God will not be mocked and will crush permanently and irredeemably, kind of ultimate rebellion against him. Okay, why, why is the view problematic? Well, one thing I find problematic about the diversion account has to do with God's creative purposes. Suppose, as many have thought, that God created the world fundamentally motivated by love for creation, or at least that such love rests among God's uh, motives for creating. If so, then it's plausible that this loving motive for creation will subsequently inform all of God's dealings with creatures, such that God won't bring creatures to complete and utter ruin, right? God wouldn't do that. He's, he loves them. So he won't make their future flourishing impossible. Now, if God created the world for the sake of love, it seems that God would punish creatures in a way that has the built-in prospects of bettering them in some way. So you find this kind of argument developed, or you you find this kind of argument in Isaac the Syrian, and I have developed it both a little bit in the book and elsewhere to try to make it more rigorous. Here's another challenge, right, for the divergent account. Jesus just does not appear to represent the divine character in a way that would punish severely without taking into account the future flourishing of those punished. So punish severely, yes, in a way that doesn't, that completely crushes 
and removes all prospects for rich future flourishing? No, that's my claim anyway. So for example, right, Jesus calls his followers to repudiate the retaliatory ethic of an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. And in places like Matthew 5.48, Jesus seems to ground this non-retaliatory ethic in the character of God. Jesus seems to be saying, and this is quite a paraphrase here, be perfect as your heavenly father is perfect by loving your enemies and refusing to utterly ruin them via your punishments. Again, that is quite a paraphrase, but I could argue about that in a little bit more length if need be. So it seems that Christ is appealing to the perfection of our Heavenly Father, right, in a way that presupposes that God is not the kind of being that utterly destroys those that sin against him. So a lot more could be said about this topic, right? But the basic idea, anyways, at least on the second motivation against a divergent account, is that Jesus' example and teachings about love don't suggest that God is in the business of irredeemably crushing those who sin against him via his punishments. So that's the idea. Okay. So it would seem, I don't know if this is a consistent triad that you deploy, but the three conditions that you mentioned earlier were that you want your account to mess with the biblical data, you want uh, it to be intuitively plausible, and you don't want there to be defeaters. Uh, so this one definitely seems to hit the first mark strongly Yeah, uh, in which the, the biblical data seems to support this. To ask a question about that, it seems as though the, what is the term? Uh, the divergent account, you have framed it as being motivated by God desiring to crush his uh, opponents or his enemies or those who are failing to submit to him. Uh, couldn't the divergent account also be motivated by perhaps justice in which God has given individuals a certain choice and they have declined to be in fellowship with him? And so therefore the the due desserts or the just desserts are that they suffer. Yeah, so that is the primary way. So it's like a holy, just God, right? Just sort of crushing those who rebel against him, right? Or if the language of crushing is not I'm trying to make a point with the language, right? But if that is unsavory, the idea would be he rent, they deserve irredeemable punishment, or they deserve to have their flourishing irredeemably removed from them, right? So people can make that claim, right? And they have throughout history. It's very difficult to make good on that claim. So there's this thing called the status principle, which strikes me as generally right, but then it's very difficult to get um, eternal punishment, eternal divine punishment kind of to fall out or be an implication of the status principle. So status principle says something like this, the sins, so think of a kind of chain of being with God on the top and like minerals at the bottom and you have earthworms, humans, angels, whatever. Um, so think of a chain of being and the status principle says that the, the higher the status of the being sinned against, the worse the punishment due. Right. That's that's the claim. And so some people have thought where you sin against an infinite being, this requires infinite punishment. And it just turns out it's very difficult to make that argument stick. Right. So Zachary Manis in his recent book, The Presence of a Loving God, he has a good, thorough overview of the literature on on the status principle and um, explains some of the reasons why people have thought uh, it doesn't work. Um, So I'm with them. I just don't think that status principle will get you sort of eternal, irredeemable punishment. 
It seems like there's a bit of a connection between what we talked about at the beginning of this interview, which is the motivation that God creates either from glorificationism or out of love, and then the motivations for a divergent account. Specifically, it seems like the divergent account would yield a much better plausibility or a, a higher plausibility given the glorification. Account. Yes, that's right. Is that an intentional connection that you're trying to make? And do you think that the motivation of love is necessary for pushing back against the divergent account as well? Yeah, I, I do think maybe it won't be absolutely necessary, but it'll certainly be helpful. So what unites the book, right? So there are various chapters in the book, but what unites the book is trying to unpack this sort of Exodus Redditus structure that many people have, have seen playing out in the sort of salvation drama. So God exists within the Trinitarian life of love, then God creates motivated by love, then God, when creation falls, redeems motivated by love, and then invites that, that creation into the divine life and deifies it. And the thought is this whole thing is driven by love, and the book is then trying to lay out a coherent account of this exit and return structure motif. So then when it comes to things like, well, how does God punish? How does God do various things? I'm trying to run this love, this loving view kind of all the way through and see if I can make sense of it. So you've explained some of the divergent account. Could you tell us about the unitary account of punishment? So the unitary account, God's punishment of wrongdoers is motivated by love for them. So such punishment aims qual punishment to secure the good, for example, of the one punished. Now, the divergent account and the unitary account, as I, as I lay them out, there are other views you could hold. I'm just kind of mapping out two positions. And in a later essay, I'll, I'll, make, I'll, I'll talk about other you know, views, uh, other ways of understanding the interrelation between, say, divine punishment and love. But these are sort of big picture views. Anyways, the unitary account is punishment out of love, right, for those punished, not just like for humanity on the whole or something on that order. So some motivations for the view, the unitary view, We've already discussed, right? So if you think God created the world motivated by love, then it wouldn't be surprising to learn that God also punishes in love. If God's driving dealings with humanity is one of love, punishment surely would also be out of love. And, you know, after all, this is what good parents do, right? When parents punish their children, they don't aim to crush them irredeemably, Right, at least if they're functioning according to their ideals, or at least healthy parents according to their ideals, rather they try to correct them, they try to reform them and the like. The thought is that God is similar in this respect. He's working for our good. Now, sometimes the punishments at issue might be strong. They might seem unbearable or whatever. But the idea is that God is doing this to redeem us in some way, or at least open up a kind of path to redemption for us via punishment. So another motivation, right, for the unitary account is that it makes sense of the teachings example of Christ, right? There should be no surprise there, right, that it would make that appeal. So Christ tells us that love should rest behind all our morally relevant actions so that we might mirror the divine character to some degree. In other words, Jesus says things like, yeah, love God, love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commands hang all the law and the prophets, Right. And he's not alone in saying this. Paul does similar things and others. And then they all seem to ground this ethic in the character of God. It's not like I'm not coming out against divine command, uh, divine command theory here, but it doesn't seem to be that the New Testament authors are saying that God's like, try something that I don't do. 
love your neighbor as yourself, you know, that sort of thing. That seems like a good idea. No, it seems to be like, do these things because that's the way God is. Right. And I could argue uh, for that if need be uh, and a bit more like, so that's the idea, right? Love like God loves, right? And God in Christ shows us how to love by being willing to die for his enemies. It seems that the God that we find revealed in Christ would punish in a manner specified by the, by the unitary account. That is, it seems to me anyways, that God would punish redemptively in some way. So those are two things that I think um, fit pretty well on the unitary account and not so well on the divergent account. I think you've already gotten to this a little bit, but maybe just to push it to the, the front of everything, could you tell us about the communicative model of punishment and how this pairs with the two motivations, punishment and love? Yeah. So one way of thinking about the communicative model of punishment is that it seeks to pair remedial or redemptive forms of punishment with retribution. So let me just say something about retribution. So according to standard forms of retribution, punishment to a certain fitting degree is thought to be justified by the guilt of the one punished. Sometimes this is called a backward-looking form of punishment, right? Since the justification of punishment looks back, so to speak, at the guilt accrued by an individual's past misdeeds. By contrast, the proponent of redemptive forms of punishment often hold that punishment is you know, forward-looking. Here, the justification of punishment is found in some future good to be procured for the subject of punishment, such as reform. So the communicative model tries to pair these two things. The communicative model of divine punishment in particular aims to integrate both forward-looking and backward-looking elements into a coherent model of God's punishment. So the proponent of such a communicative model says that God punishes sinners so that God might holistically communicate the censure deserved for sin. There's a sort of retributive component. Yet in communicating the censure, God seeks to highlight the way of redemption. The idea in brief then is that punishment forces the wrongdoer to face up to his or her wrongdoing in a manner that is internally oriented to bringing about repentance, reform, and appropriate reconciliation. So, Yeah, there's a lot that could be said here, but it tries to take the biblical data where God does things that that shocks us and just seems retributive, but then also this loving theme that you find in Scripture, it tries to find a way to fit these two components together into a coherent model punishment. So that's the idea behind the communicative model of divine punishment. Okay, so it's backward-looking insofar as it focuses on the transgressions of the individuals yeah. and it's forward-looking with respect to their future flourishing. Yeah, so it's, the way I think about it is, uh, on the forward-looking component, it's internally geared towards at least opening up the opportunity for some sort of flourishing. People might not take advantage of that, right? So I, I'm a libertarian, and I think God puts a premium on human freedom. So it might be that humans don't take advantage of that, but the idea is just like when me functioning according to my ideals, I punish my children in a way that corrects them in some way or opens up the opportunity for them to own up to the wrongdoing so that they might flourish morally and otherwise. The thought is God does something similar with us. God gives us what we deserve, yes, but does it in such a way that it illuminates the path to spiritual change. 
So you say it illuminates. So the punishment will be done on God's part with the motivation of teaching, but it somehow when the patient receives the punishment, this instructs them, it illumines how they ought to proceed. Yeah. Yes, that's generally right. I often in, in the, in, so something like this view, uh, the communicative model of punishment you find in, in luminaries such as Origen, Gregory of Nyssa, Clement of Alexandria, uh, Isaac the Syrian, many others, right? Some people stress the, the retributive component more than others. Some kind of distance themselves um, from it, but you have basically this sort of punishment. Now, some people, particularly Origen, I think Clement as well, they really do talk about it in terms of divine pedagogy. I don't like that way of thinking about it. I think it has a sort of what's presupposed there is this idea that people need to learn something that they don't know, or at least reteach them something that they may have forgotten or remind them of some moral thing. The way I like to think about it is, no, God visits the experiences on you that you deserve, or it visits a kind of hard treatment on you that you deserve, so that it, it creates a context in which you might know it's wrong, but now you'll probably experience the sort of badness of your actions so that you might take ownership over that and then distance yourself from it by repenting. And then you furthermore, if you've genuinely repented, you will do the sort of things that can make things right, right? So now you think about something like reparation, right? Or you might think in the Christian context, right? What does making it right mean? Well, part of it might be repenting, but then also pleading something like the sacrifice of Christ on your behalf. Like, I can't do this. I have messed this up. There's nothing I can do to offer reparation. But what I can do is identify myself with what Christ has done. And that could be a form of, you know, a meager form, but the best we have as humans, a form of reparative identification or something like that, right? So the idea is it's a holistic ownership of the badness of your actions so that you might reform and then when appropriate seek some sort of reconciliation thanks again for joining us on the lagos institute podcast based at the university of st andrews in scotland please consider leaving us a review on itunes and of course don't forget to follow us on facebook and twitter you can find out more about the lagos institute by visiting our website found in the description Thank you.